Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Yeah, I relate to Ruth because um, I like taking walks in the woods and I have my camera equipment and everything else with me and taking a hike over um, over in the metro parks, um, Rocky River Reservation, down there um, just south of 82, I think it's the Mill Run Reservation. They got a whole bunch of neat hiking trails, like one of them is like seven miles long, you know. So I go on that to keep my figure up and just walking along and enjoying it, and all of a sudden I trip over a root, and down I go, face first, camera and all. Boom. That was what I was worried about. You know? And then, and then I was, of course, I'm out in, in Tucson on top of um, one of the mountains there, north of Tucson, and enjoying a, you know, just a beautiful, and it, you know, this is like, you know how it is rocky, you know, it's up and down and rocks and all kinds of junk, everything. You know, it's like if I fall down, I'm going to really hurt myself, you know. So I got, did the hike, came back, and just as I was almost done, I'm hitting this flat, there's nothing, you know, just flat space, no problems. Boom, down I go, right face first. And it's like there's nothing to trip over, so how I went down, huh? I tripped over my own feet, and it's like, well, at least I didn't fall down the mountain. That's a good thing, you know, and I didn't trip on a bunch of rocks, you know, and hurt myself, and so you got to watch it, you know. Yeah, I'm, years ago, back when I was in Wyoming, and I was horseback. Oh. And I borrowed a telephone, a large lens, Yeah. I didn't have my camera. So I had on my camera, and I went to get on my horse, and I knew he tended to move quickly, but I tried to get on before he started moving, but I didn't, and he moved. I did a somersault over the horse, but I landed on my feet and saved that camera. Wow. <laughs> that was what I was most worried about with that lens that I borrowed. Well, the problem is some of these lenses cost more than the camera. You know, some of these lenses I have cost more than the camera. Yeah, it wasn't mine. Was you know, and it's like, I, I don't want to, yeah. So you got to watch yourself. The point is, I, and I, after that, when I fell down out in Arizona, I said, yeah, I think there's a verse on that. Where lest any man think he standeth, take heed lest he fall, you know. Because I'm thinking I'm home free now, you know, I'm not going to fall down. I'm, you know, I, I got all the dangers part done. Boom. About that time, it was just, I think an angel tripped me. I don't know. But down I went. Down I went, you know. This house, and you can't see black ice. No. Yeah. And my, I went down so fast, I didn't have time to break my fall. My head bounced off the concrete. A little bit of, uh, it knocked me out, but I knew. Did they have to repair the concrete when you're done? <laughs> no. There has been residual damage. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my memory now. Yeah, but yeah, you got to watch. Yeah. Anyways, we're in Romans 5. We're going to, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get through this book. We just, this chapter, this chapter is just too good of stuff, you know. Um, 
But last week we were talking about Romans 5, 12 through 14. And uh, really the key here in Romans 5 is substitution. Christ took our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. Um, and again, that's fallen on hard times nowadays because there's a movement out in so-called evangelical Christianity that wants to try and dismiss the substitutionary atonement as cosmic child abuse. God would never do that. God would never have his son die for us. And of course, what does the Bible say Christ did? He died for us. So you, do you go with what they think or with what the Bible says? Yeah, you don't go with what they think. Because here's the thing, every time, this is a universal truth, you can take it to the bank. Every time you impose your human wisdom on the Bible, the Bible loses. It always does. You can try to impose human wisdom, take psychology, you post psych modern psychological theories on the Bible, the Bible always loses. It always is diminished. Science, whatever it is, the Bible loses. We cannot allow our own ideas and notions to drive what the Bible says. The Bible says what it says. We've got to go with it. And Paul is saying here in Romans 5 very clearly, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Now, we realize that sin was outside of the world in Satan, right? But how did it get into the earth? How did it get into this world? It came through what? One man. Notice it says one man, not one woman. Eve was deceived, we'll get that. But Adam knew what he was doing. He was the responsible party. And what came in with that sin? Well, death came into this world. And death spread to all men because all of sin. And we talked about the two ways in which that happens. Number one, theologians call this the federal headship view. Adam was our federal head. He, he was the sole representative of the entire human race. And because of his sin, that sin is imputed or, cre or credited to us at the moment of our birth. Federal headship. But what else do we have from Adam? Well, we have a fallen flesh, don't we? We have a propensity to sin. Our fallenness. So not only do we have the imputed guilt of Adam, we have this fallenness that comes from him, and this is spread to all men. Because what? All have sinned. And you say, well, wait a minute, I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't sin. No, that's not the way it works. Because had you been there, what would you have done? Sin. You'd have done the same thing. Don't, don't, don't say, well, I would have been smarter than Adam. No, you wouldn't have been smarter than Adam. And then we note, he's got to make a point here, he says, well, because he's writing to Jewish people, Gentiles and Jews. Well, wait a minute. What about the law? We got the law from Moses, right? And he has to make the point, for until the law came, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. In other words, I, and I use the illustration, I could not get arrested for speeding 200 years ago because there were no cars. The laws did not exist. I can't be arrested for something that does not exist. And the point that some would ask is, well, how come um, God imputed sin to them and they sinned when there was no law with which to sin? How do you know there was sin in the world? And Paul says, well, everybody died. 
Death is a result of sin. People died. Therefore, people are what? Sinners. Now, it is true that people back then are not held to the higher standard of the law. Nevertheless, there was a law. Did, did Cain know what God wanted? Yeah. Did people back in Adam's time know what God wanted? Why? He told them. The guy lived to be 960 some odd years old, right? I mean, come on. He knew. He could tell them. If he wanted to know, you could know. It's not that, you know, this was hidden and nobody knew what God wanted. Everybody knew exactly what God wanted. But they didn't want to give it to God. And it says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death was the universal operative constant, except for one person, Enoch. But everybody else died. Even those who did not sin in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, even though they did not sin the same way Adam sinned, nevertheless they died because they are sinners, because of the imputed guilt, the pollution, and then their own actions. But they sinned by not doing what God wanted, but they, as it says here, that they did not break command. Yeah. They didn't break that same command, but they broke commands. They broke something that God didn't want, but it wasn't a direct command to them, like the Ten Commandments. Yeah, it wasn't a direct commandment. It's, it's that Adam, Adam passed on to them, and, and Abel, well, Abel was dead, Seth. Yeah. You know, this is what God requires. He requires a sacrifice. There's coming a deliverer. They knew what God wanted. They were not without excuse. Of course, they didn't have the legal code like Moses brought, but nevertheless, it was there. And by the way, this is interesting. Let's just take a little slight detour. All right, just a slight detour. Remember the story of Abraham and Abimelech and Sarah. All right. Well, you know, Sarah comes in, or Abraham and Sarah come into the land. He's a pretty wealthy guy, right? And uh, it says that he, had, he, he met Abimelech. All right. Now, what did Abimelech do? Or what did he try to do? Right. Well, Abraham said he was his sister, right? So why would Abimelech want to marry Sarah? More than that. More than that. Huh? It was Abraham's wife. Abimelech didn't know that. All right. He didn't know that. But why would he want to marry Sarah? You're close. It's a marriage. It's a marriage con. Yeah, it's a it's a political marriage. Abimelech is big. I got this really powerful guy coming into my area who's powerful as me, how can I make sure we don't go to war with each other? I'll tell you what, I'll marry his sister. That way, 
Why do you think Abraham, why do you think Solomon wound up with all his wives? These were all political alliances that he made. Well, he could, but the point is, the point is most of these were political alliances. Why would he marry Pharaoh's daughter of all people? I mean, they're hundreds of miles apart. What what they didn't meet online. They weren't dating. Why did they It's a political alliance. A lot of these were political alliances. They did that even yeah. Yeah, that's how that's you look at the you know the, the the monarchies over in Europe and a lot of that was intermarriage, you know. If I marry my daughter off to this guy then, you know, we won't he won't invade my land. But here's the thing. What did God do to Abimelech? Well, remember well, he didn't, well, Pharaoh became, though, I think it was. But Abimelech, nobody could bear children. All right? And then when he found out that Sarah was really Abraham's wife, he, he saw that as an evil thing, that he would marry her. The reason I bring that whole big story out is, what did Abimelech have in the back of his mind? That was, it was wrong to do what? He, they, they had some semblance of what was right and wrong. Yeah, they got that. Pharaoh got that. Yeah. The point is, even prior to the law, there was a recognition that there were things that were right and things that were wrong. The, the ancient people had a knowledge of morality, a knowledge of right, a knowledge of wrong. Yeah, they didn't have the Mosaic law to go by. But they certainly knew what was right and wrong. And remember earlier on in Romans, Paul says if you know what is right and wrong and you violate that, that is a what? Sin. Death reigned. Even though the even like even though those who had not sinned the likeness or the the form of the way that Adam sinned, who was a type of him who's to come, who a type. We talked a little bit about types. A type is a picture. It's a representation. Adam is a type of Christ. Christ is the anti-type of Adam. And we're going to find out what that means. It means Adam represented all of humanity in death. Christ represents all of humanity in life. Here's the bottom line of Romans 5. Every human being that's ever lived, ever been born, ever existed, is identified with one of two individuals. You're identified with Adam by virtue of you being a human being, or you are identified with Christ by virtue of the new birth. But one of those guys, one of those individuals is your head, is the one who you are connected with, represented by. All right? Adam and death, Christ and life. Every human being that's ever lived is identified with one of those two individuals. But the gracious gift, verse 15, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. 
This is the identification. In Adam, many died. Now, when he says many, what do you think that means? All. This is, he's, he's doing a literary con contrast here. All right. Now, theoretically, you could say, well, many died. Well, Enoch didn't die. But all the other 40 billion plus people did. He's not talking about outliers here. It says, in Adam, everybody died. Many died in Adam, but much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Here's the point that he's trying to make. The grace that we have is much more than what we have lost. It takes us beyond what we have lost. It doesn't, rem it doesn't bring us back to zero. It doesn't bring our infinite debt of sin back, our account, if you think of it as an account, it doesn't bring the balance to zero. Rather, it adds the infinite righteousness of Christ on top of that. Am I correct in, in seeing this as the definition of many with Adam is all. Right. The definition with many with Christ is those that receive him. Many, yes. Many. Not all. Okay? Because later on he's going to use all, all. Okay? You got to follow the how he's doing this. Okay? And the grace of the one man abounded too many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. It's like one man's sin, many transgressions. In Christ, many transgressions become justified. And again, what do we say about justification? It's not just as if you've done it, never done it. It's not. It's it's um, actually just as if you'd never done it and you did the righteous thing. There's always a positive component to it. It's not just it brings you back to neutral. It takes you beyond that. The gift is not, and the gift there. What is a gift? By definition, what is a gift? All right, it's a given to you, right? On what basis? Freely. Freely. If somebody gives me a gift, I say, wow, that's awesome. Here, let me give you 10 bucks for it. That's not a gift. Right? This is the amazing thing here. Have to be obedient to God to 
journey with him the rest of my life. Yeah. The only thing you can give back to God is the appreciation for the gift. I can't pay him back. How do you pay back God for something that's of infinite value? You can't. You can't. And, and here's the thing. If you give a gift to someone and they want to pay you for it, that's sort of an insult to you, is it not? The whole point is, and I, I, I had somebody... I like you, you know. I, I like to give. I hate to give. I hate to receive. I'm not a good receiver. I'm a very good giver, but not a good receiver. And I had a friend of mine who taught me, don't steal my joy. He's bigger than me, so he could beat me up. But we would go out and eat, and he would pick up the tab. And I said, let me pay for it now. No, no, don't steal my joy. Well, I didn't want to not only steal his joy, I didn't want to get beat up. So I let him, you know. I used to tell him, I said, okay, you're bigger than me. You can do it this time. But, but the point there is that to him it was a sense of joy to give. The Bible says it's more blessed to do what? Give, give than receive. And isn't that the opposite of sin? What is sin? Gimme. Gimme, gimme, gimme. What can I get out of this deal? God's grace is given to us. It is a free gift. It cannot be earned. You can't pay for it. You can't merit it. It's a free gift. Adam worked for his sin, didn't he? But the gift is different. It was given. Notice what Adam sinned. It, it resulted in what? Condemnation. Condemnation of everyone. Judgment. But the gracious gift arose from many transgressions. Proptima, many stumblings, many offenses. It means to stumble over, trip over. There's several words for sin in the New Testament. One is humartia, means to miss the mark. This one here is to stumble, to trip, to make a mistake. Did Adam stumble and trip over that? Yeah, he did. And we all stumble and trip, don't we? So we're early on speaking of falls. We're all stumbling and tripping over ourselves. But it results, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, and it resulted in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned. How do you know death reigned? Well, everybody died. Someone said death and taxes, those are the two certainties of life. No one gets out of this life without dying, do they? We like to think we live forever, but we're not going to. That's the point. All of us live forever, it's just a question of where we're going to spend it. But death reigned through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Notice the flipping of things. The first group, death reigned. What does it mean? If death reigned over them, then they were subject to what? Death. But in Christ, what do they do? Are they reigned by or are they reign? We will reign in life. 
In other words, death has no reign over us. Rather, we reign over life. Think about that. Oh, we die an earthly death, but yeah, you know, but the point is, and again, life, eternal life in the Bible is not duration, it's quality. Does every human being have eternal life? If you mean by eternal life they live forever, yes. If you mean by eternal life they're in heaven, no. Everybody lives forever somewhere. Unless you're an annihilationist and say God poofs you out of existence if you're lost, which the Bible doesn't teach. But Nelson said much more. I used to be reigned by death. I was subject to death. I was subject to separation from God. But now, through Christ, I reign in life. I reign in life through the one Jesus Christ been flipped. He's translated me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. I used to be fearful of death. Now I'm not fearful of death. I have life. Much more. Again, he just, not, just does not bring me up to neutral. He gives me something far beyond that. Where? Yes. Yep, because eternal death is separation from God, right? Eternal death, you're not going to be with God. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Here's the all. Early it was the many, right? Now he's using all. So then, through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there, re there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, if you read that literally, you're a universalist, right? Everybody goes to heaven. But we understand the construct that he's trying to make here with the many and the all. He's not using the term all in the sense of every person is saved, but let's ask a question. In the death of Christ, potentially, potentially, could all people be saved? Yes. Potentially, yes. Why? In what sense did he die for all men? See, this is a big theological argument you get into right here. Well, whoever believes gets to partake of it, but the payment has been made sufficient for all. Yeah, it's not, this is the whole, in the doctrines of grace, the one that people choke and gasp and wheeze and cough their skull up on is called limited atonement. And we toss that around, people who are, are, are against the doctrines of grace which I think are correct, I'm all, all of them, say, well, you're, you're limiting the death of Christ to just be good enough for the elect. And I say, in the efficacious sense, yes, right? Because not everybody goes to heaven, right? But in the value category, it's an infinite sacrifice.
Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what, and I agree with you on that, that that is a bona fide offer. You don't, you don't go and say, well, if you're elect, you're in, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about this later when we get to Romans 9. We're going to have a big debate in the class on this whole thing, you know. It's coming. Don't worry about it. The point here, though, is that Christ's death, in a value sense, is valuable enough that it could have redeemed every human being that has ever lived. It's, a, it's, a, it's an infinite sacrifice. Okay, the argument is who gets it? And that's, and that's the big argument we're coming up with with Roman design. We're going to wait for that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know that I I read Mm-hmm. And I think that just that that really just emphasizes the fact that we don't know other people's hearts. We no. don't know the dynamics they're living with, we don't know the details of their lives. And it's not for us maybe even to speculate aside from whatever God urges us to do to try to help them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I the way I tell people is that, you know, theoretic and we're gonna get into this more when we get into the discussion of it later on. But practically, we need to be Arminian in the sense that anybody has a resp anybody can believe. Because I don't know. Yeah. We're going to explain that verse, too. We'll get there. We're going to have fun. All right? Debate. Talk. 
discussion, all right? But here's the point here. Well, the point that Paul's trying to make here is that Christ's, Christ's death provides it for all men. All right? There's a provision for all, okay? He didn't say Christ, you know, well, there's many of them that might get in there. All, okay? Don't, don't go, don't let your theology get in the way of your evangelism. Right. Right. That's the point he's trying to make. But all of us who are orthodox in a sense know that not everybody goes to heaven. Not everybody gets there. Even though the potential value of the sacrifice and the death of Christ provided a way for them, that doesn't mean they're part of that. No, God knows. No. I always tell people I lost my copy of the Book of Life. So I don't know. I don't know who's in and not. Yeah. Yeah. As far as humanly speaking, but I said typically I've made that decision to receive Christ as the Savior, therefore that's what's that's what's saving me, that's what's paying for my sin, you know. Try to get them to understand that uh, so we don't know if the people yeah. people can pray in front of you and say the words. Mm -hmm. But we have no idea what their heart is. And and Ruth and Ingram yeah. used to say you're not supposed to judge people. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's the point there. We we can, I can look at somebody's life and say, you know, from what I can tell, I, I sort of think Denny's a Christian. All right, I, there's some evidence, there's some evidences there that would lead me to believe that yeah, he's probably in. All right, but I don't have a copy of the Book of Life. We are, and we we I don't see a person's heart. All I can do is. Let God, and brother, that's really the parable of the wheat and tares, right? Yep. The parable of the wheat and tares. Let them both grow till harvest. And then when the harvest, I will send my angels. They will do the separation. But if you try to do separation now, what are you going to do? You're going to mess it up. You're going to pull out a wheat and leave a tear. Because we don't know. Yeah, you, we don't know. So don't go there. What Paul is trying to say there in this whole passage. I thought we were going to get through it today and well maybe we will. Um, is the all to many the identification. Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more. Why did the law come in? To expose what? Sin. sin. But where sin was exposed what happened to grace? It abounded even more. It abounded even more. The idea of bound there is to go over, beyond, above. So that as death 
sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our, oh, our Lord. Here's the point. You can't out the grace of God. Um, if you were to buy a diamond, how do they, how do they display to you a diamond? In the di I mean, if most of us go to buy a diamond, you know, but how do they display it? In a case. In a case, and what is behind the case? A person. No. When you're, when you're looking at a diamond, what are they putting on? A black surface. Why? So they can see the carrots? So you can see the brilliance of the diamond. If you put the diamond on a white background, what do you get? It doesn't really show it, does it? You can't really see it. But if you want to see the brilliance of the diamond, you put it against a black surface. And that exposes it. Yeah. The way we see things is by contrast. What really exposes the grace of God as really a big deal? His son? Sin. A lot of sin. If God wants to show his grace, he picks the worst, cruddiest, ickiest sinner of all redeems them and people say, wow, I guess that's what grace is. That's why like a lot of the bad times you know, go to church. People look at the church and say by righteousness, by the way they're going. But many people did because they saw how much how they shown. Yep. They did so much good that it was so shocking to Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things, um, being older, I need more light to see things, right? So I went, you know, for my vehicles, I got this LED flashlight that's like 17, I don't know, some god-awful number of candle power or something like that, you know. It just, it's awesome, you know, little 3C batteries and, it, you know, whatever, you know. But now if I take that flashlight out on a sunny day and shine it, what happens? Not much, but I'll tell you what, if it's pitch black and, a full, and you know, dark moon and I take that thing out, it lights up the entire backyard. It's contrast. How do we know how gracious God is? We look at how bad we are. Was, was the law given also to make people more aware of sin? Yes, or? to expose it. To... to it was our schoolmaster. It, it, it exposed us for what we are. You know, the, here's the point. You know, I can go. We, we know those people in our lives that are not the neatest, cleanest people on the planet. And if you go to their house in the mid, at midnight, it doesn't look all that bad, does it? What happens when you turn the light on? 
you see the junk, you see the filth, you see the trash, you see the... You don't see it when it's dark. What does the light of God's grace expose? The blackness of our sin. We see the contrast. But the light, the darkness, as Christ said in John, does not overcome the light. The light overcomes the darkness. God's grace is greater than the darkness. It's greater than our sin. Again, my favorite hymn, grace greater than all my sin. I can't out-sin God. I can't get one up on Him. This week, we, um, the Church Life Board and the, and the SAT take turns writing the church devotions. And this week is my, was my week to write it. And uh, one of the passages we looked at is when Christ healed the leper. It always amazed me, and I heard a message many years ago that was interesting by um, Ligon Duncan. Um, that just, I mean, it, it's one of those messages that sticks in your brain. But if you know anything about leprosy in those days, leprosy was the worst disease you could have. And you were a pariah to your society. You had to stay away from people. You couldn't relate to people. You had to live on your own. You were abandoned. You were seen as cursed by God. And this leper comes to Christ and says, Lord, you can heal me. Now, as a good Jewish person, what should Christ have done? Run the other way. What does it say Christ did to him? How? touched him. And Christ did not become leprosy. What happened to the leprosy? Christ did not become Christ did not become unclean. Rather the unclean became clean. When Christ touched me, he didn't become unclean. I became clean, much more. His grace is much more. His grace reverses my uncleanness and makes it clean. That is the grace of God, much more. Beyond anything, and by the way, the much more here is, I think it's a word that Paul came up with. It's super overabundant, much more beyond anything anybody can think. He just makes these things up, almost. It's an over-superabundance of grace that we have. We made it through chapter 5. Next week, chapter 6. Father, thank you for this time and... Uh, I think the thing that amazes me here, Father, is that a couple things. Number one, I can't out -sin you. I cannot commit a sin that you don't see or you don't know or you don't understand. Your grace is greater. And I think the other thing that amazes me, Father, is when you touched me, a filthy sinner, you did not become filthy. Rather, I became clean shows the power of the grace that we have. Don't let us forget that. Help us think about it this week. 
And again, thank you for this time, for this passage of Scripture, and for what you've said to us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.